Hello everyone, this is Molly Rowan Leach, your host for the Peace Alliance's Restorative Justice on the Rise, ongoing free telecouncil series, providing a platform for dialogue, connection, education, and understanding relating to the very poignant justice conversation in our country and beyond. This archive is from September 19th and features the powerful conversation that we had with Dr. Carl Stauffer. He teaches Justice and Development Studies at the Graduate Center for Justice and Peacebuilding at Eastern Mennonite University, and he talks uh, extensively about his experiences in many different countries, Zimbabwe, Sierra Leone, and others. This was a powerful conversation about transformative justice and restorative justice. Looking forward to hearing your feedback and to seeing you in the near future at dopeace.us. That's where you can find the archives for all of these programs, including last season's and ongoing scheduling. Thank you and enjoy this archive. Good evening and good afternoon, everyone. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and I am your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise, brought to you by the Peace Alliance. We just opened our new season, and this is an ongoing telecouncil series that features wayshowers in the field of restorative justice and beyond. It's a free series that uh, is supported by your donations. Feel free to go to the Peace Alliance website to make a donation if you are so moved. You might also know, if you've been with us before, that the archives of this series are posted at dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. Now you can go there and access archives not only from the last few weeks of our, our season here, but also from last season, featuring conversations with Arun Gandhi, Dr. A.T. Ariaratni from the Sarvodia Movement, James O.D., Belvie Rooks, Judith Thompson, Rianne Eisler, and many, many others in the field, and including people doing very critical work on the ground, like Lois DeMott up in Minnesota with um, Citizens for Prison Reform. So tonight, I am just very pleased and honored to be welcoming our special guest and, and just want to share again the purpose and intention of these councils is to create an atmosphere uh, of a virtual circle, so to speak, that helps people to feel like they can join in the conversation throughout the calls and to be able to participate in a way not unlike being in person in a circle. So at about at the half hour tonight and every night, we like to open it up for calls, but feel free to press one on your keypad that's on your telephone keypad at any time throughout tonight's call. If you do have a question, um, we will specifically, again, be opening it up at about the half hour and towards the end of the call tonight for discussion and comments. The intention, again, is education, connection, and uh, a way for people to dialogue and connect surrounding this very important conversation and justice. So without further ado, I am really honored, I'm deeply inspired by the life of Dr. Carl Stauffer, 
He teaches justice and development studies at the Graduate Center for Justice and Peacebuilding at Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Now, uh, many of you may know of the powerful work that Eastern Mennonite University brings to the world through their academic programming. And uh, I just want to mention, too, that, that uh, Carl works alongside uh, Howard Zare, who happens to be uh, considered, I believe, one of the grandfathers, so to speak, of the more modern restorative justice movement. So in, in the uh, beginning here, Carl, of our time together tonight, I'd just like to invite you to start by sharing the powerful journey that you've had internationally and um, anything you'd like us to know about what brought you into this work. Welcome, Carl. Thank you, Molly. It's good to, to be here. And um, I will start uh, with sort of the personal journey just because I feel very strongly that the personal journey has um, woven together so much of, of who I am and, and, and what I do. And um, I was, uh, my parents went um, overseas from Virginia. They traveled to Vietnam uh, under the Mennonite Church in 1957 unbeknowing at the time that they were heading to the place that was soon to be in the midst embroiled in the war that we all know uh, about. And I was born and raised in Vietnam, 1964, in the middle of the war. And uh, there are many stories about that, um, but I, I, I would simply say that that had a huge um, imprint, uh, impact on my life, growing up in a situation where you saw the devastation, the trauma, and... Um, the the pain uh, of of war and of violence um there was uh there was huge huge uh scars uh, as well as impact that that stayed with me for the rest of my life and um we moved on from from uh vietnam onto the philippines just as the time the marcos regime was was sort of crumbling so uh this thing of my parents getting us in, into hot spots seemed to be the place to be but all of this was part of my my education i say for life and um and then after our studies back here in the states um, my studies uh, and and then some work in the um inner city and that's where i really entered into the career or the professional side of of the work in peace building in 1991 i became the first executive director for the capital area victim offender reconciliation program which was really looking at reconciliation um or justice mediation between criminals uh criminal offenders and and victim victims uh and mostly in the juvenile court at that point early on at that point that was really a a turning point in my understanding of justice i had to figure out what did justice look like in in this different context, very different context. It was predominantly African American, it was juvenile offenders, and it was in a in a part of the community, the urban community that was uh redlined, extremely disadvantaged, and there was a lot of structural violence that we were working with, uh, as well as the justice system itself and all of the violence that that, that entailed. And so that was a real turning point for me to begin to understand what 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 does justice mean in a in a totally different context than my own, and that was really the 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 forerunner to uh, myself and my family then uh, moving to South Africa in 1994, four months before the all-inclusive um, elections, which brought Mandela into power, and we had signed up for three-year uh, term with a 
Mennonite Central Committee, sort of the relief and development arm of our church, and um, it turned into 16 years. We didn't return till 2009. Africa's left uh, a huge uh, imprint there, too. And in that process, I was privileged to not only work with the transition in South Africa, including the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, which was the starting point in my journey into transitional justice issues and what would it look like to help a collective, a whole country, a whole nation, a whole people group begin to heal, work through memory, and try to find a place for justice um, in, and for a future that would involve a longer-term durable peace. From there, starting in 2000, I spent about a decade then traveling into the rest of Africa as a regional peace advisor for the organization and um, moved into about 20 different countries, uh, hotspots mostly, um, post-war contexts, uh, including Rwanda, Burundi, and uh, Congo, and um, Sierra Leone, and other other places in Africa. And that was really the, the beginning of, of this journey of looking into a justice that um, is is sometimes uh, hard to find uh, in in this kind of post-war context where you have such extreme trauma and brokenness, and yet I find um, restorative justice has has proven over and over again to provide a framework to provide the hope, and um, I have a tremendous amount of confidence in in the in the future of restorative justice and the movement that we're part of as restorative justice. Wow, you've had such a background, um, and your life has just been packed, I mean, beginning with your birth, of uh, profound, um, I'm sure you witnessed profound things and um, devastating things. And like you were saying, I I love how you were, um, including life as your education, even though you're an extraordinary academic as well, um, that uh, both the academic and the experience of life are important um, resources, so to speak, for, the, for informing um, wisdom surrounding the justice conversation and, and for, for now and for moving forward. And I... I'd like to like to just I know we'll probably weave in more from from this profound background that you've had, but um, perhaps you could could give us a little bit more information in your own words. I know you wrote the the paper that we shared in in the email, which will also be posted at uh, the Do Peace website as a resource. Um, which is called Finding Justice Amidst the Rubble, Restorative Interventions in Post-War Contexts. Um, In that paper, you talk pretty specifically uh, about restorative justice and also about transitional justice. And I'm sure many of us on this call probably know quite a bit uh, about one or the other, and maybe some of us don't. And I know for me, I'm very much wanting to hear more about your perspective on each, even though I may have my ideas about both. So give us a little little bit of background um, and information specifics about what what these both mean. How do they relate? Absolutely. Absolutely. And let me just preface by saying one of the things, uh, one of the metaphors I use sometimes somewhat humorously, but it speaks a lot to um, our work. Um, 
I came across uh, some old pictures or photos of old maps from way back in the Middle Ages and uh, the times when uh, they really didn't know what was beyond a certain point in the ocean. And uh, you had these uh, sailors who were trying to map out the, the land and the ocean, getting to the edge of the map and writing in sort of a cryptic uh, a font beyond there be dragons, and at times uh, it feels like when we step into <laughs> uh, our quest for trying to define or administer justice, it feels like we're moving into the unknown and beyond there be uh -huh. dragons. And I think it it it's it's sometimes uh, not only a clear risk, but um, it's it's a place an uncomfortable territory that we don't want to step into and. So sometimes circumstance brings us into those places. And, and I think I'm going to open the conversation around transitional justice and restorative justice uh, with a story um, from my experience in Sierra Leone. I had uh, already completed my master's, which I did through the organization, uh, the center I'm training at, I mean, I'm teaching at now, under Howard Zare. He was my academic supervisor. And so I had, I was, I had this restorative justice experience. Uh, both um, domestically and, and in the urban setting that I had talked about in Richmond, Virginia, but also then the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in South Africa. And, and, and there we were working at bringing together amnesty applicants and surviving family members or communities where they had uh, experienced the political violence of the apartheid security police and so on. But I'll get back to that probably at another time. So off I go to Sierra Leone in 19, uh, 19, between 1999 and 2001. I was off and on to a number of visits to Sierra Leone, and this was just on the tail end of their very brutal 12-year civil war. And for those of you who maybe aren't as familiar with that situation, all war is brutal, but I use that adjective specifically because this war used um, a large number of child soldiers between the ages of 7 and 15. Probably about, well, officially 4,500 child soldiers fought that war, but it, there was more. So there was a great deal of trauma at the level of child soldiers and all that comes with that. And then um, on top of that, the rebel movement seemingly didn't have a clear campaign or cause and, and tended to uh, use its violence in a very performative uh, practice-oriented way and often just to terrorize, it seemed like, the civilians. And so we had about seven to 10,000 civilians after the end of that civil war who had their arms or legs amputated in the process of the war, um, many of them begging for the, soldier to, soldiers to go, the rebels to go ahead and kill them because they didn't want to live uh, without their limbs and without their ability to operate. And so there was that kind of trauma, those who had been blinded, those who had been burned. And it was, it was, it was, it was considerably um, devastating and, and, and very traumatic to, to hear the stories and to be in that context. And I was doing some work amongst the refugees in actually Guinea-Conakry for Caria. Uh, and we were working at building a, a cadre of peace builders, peace trainers within the, within the, um, the refugee camp. I was privileged to be there over the time when the international community granted blanket amnesty to the rebels. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, blanket amnesty, as the metaphor of blanket sort of insinuates, means you don't need to account for anything. You're not only not legally accountable for what, you, uh, what gross human rights violations you might have committed, but you don't have to confess to anything. You don't have to involve yourself in any kind of truth-telling process. 
Um, blanket amnesty, in my opinion, is a shortcut, a shortcut to justice. It's a shortcut to reconciliation. And, um, and it, it has become quite troublesome in, in some of our efforts. But that aside, I was there to sit with the refugees when they received this information. And as one can imagine, the, the refugee camp sort of split. And one side was, was extremely angry and with tears in their eyes basically said, you know, struck out emotionally and said, you know, this, this is going to be impossible. We cannot live uh, side by side with these young rebels as if nothing ever happened. And if they enter my village, if I see them, I'll kill them. So we had, we had these expressions of deep anger and revenge on one side. And on the other side, and this was just uh, um, almost visibly, it, with all the nonverbal cues involved, I saw another half of the refugees sort of fold their arms and fold and hang their heads and basically in a very apathetic posture say, what can we do? This was the only thing we could do. This is the only way we could have peace. Both of those um, camps, you know, became extremely distressing for me because I realized as we were trying to rebuild Sierra Leone um, and reestablish its foundation as a nation, as a people, both of those extremes, revenge or apathy, were dangerous. Both of them were, were just um, time bombs waiting to go off. Both of them would have probably... Um, as the foundation for whatever process we were going to take forward in peace and justice would have been disastrous. Uh, the violence or the revenge would have just kept the violence cycle going. The apathy, while it might have been kept uh, a sort of negative peace for uh, a decade or two, the children of those folks would probably have picked the, the battle back up again. And so it was very discouraging. And in the midst of that despair and sort of crying out to God saying, what is justice in this situation? It was then that I began to say, wait a minute, how does restorative justice inform this situation? And what we began to work with in sitting with the refugees, knowing that they were going to go back to their villages, knowing that many of them did not have political or economic or legal clout, but they did have power in their village, in their context, in their immediate family clan, and, and the surroundings of what they were familiar with. And we began to realize that restorative justice was about them not so much concerning themselves with whether they could change the political or legal amnesty that was given to these young rebel soldiers, but it was more about how can they use, how can they harness their cultural, social, and spiritual capital, which they had control of, to say to these young rebels, yes, you've gotten amnesty, and yes, we can't take you to court, and we can't do this and that, but what we can do is say what you did was inhumane, and it was not, it was not dignifying for us or for you. And in order to restore you back into our human community, we're going to ask you to walk through a process of social, cultural, spiritual processes that, that were meaningful to a local community. And we're going to hold you accountable to rebuild our community with us, and to show us that you can restore your humanity. We will, we will allow you to then integrate back in and become part of this human family. But it's not as if you didn't do anything. And that, in fact, was the justice that they had control over. And that was the justice that could be satisfying to them. And so they could begin to think about reviving indigenous processes and processes of old that would allow them to restore these people making clear that as humans, we want to respect your dignity, but we don't respect 
gross human rights violations that have happened. And that was the starting point, the sort of platform for me to begin to look at transitional justice from the eyes of restorative justice. Mm. Now, when when you say um, transitional justice, um, what does that mean necessarily, and how does that relate to restorative justice? Is there, sure. is there a definition you'd like to share that's personal sure. or, or universal? Well, in, in a nutshell, transitional justice is a fast-growing field um, that is even newer than restorative justice in a sense. Um, it has really started in the early 90s um, as a field, so to speak, on its own. And it was sort of a conglomerate of pulling together the various kinds of structures that um, are transitional from truth commissions, well, starting with international criminal courts or special courts, the Hague and so on, to um, other forms of justice like truth and reconciliation commissions, to indigenous justice processes that are now starting to flourish in some post-war reconstruction processes, uh, gachacha in Rwanda being probably one of the most familiar, uh, to reintegration of ex-combatants, um, what we call bushwives, the young women uh, who may, be, may have been abducted and forced to move with rebels, maybe not uh, as fighters, but as as cooks and as uh, basically essentially sex slaves. What does it mean to reintegrate them back into society, the, the ex-combatants? How do we prepare communities for that? And then looking at memorialization, the whole process of how do we, how do we handle the historical harms and the memory? And how do we symbolically and also sometimes directly and physically and materially uh, rebuild in order to feel like there's a sense of justice in the new social configurations and, and contracts that have been that have been put together in this transition. And transition transitional justice is almost a misnomer. I think transitional justice really should just be the bridge into um, a long-term justice in in society that we should aim at. And but. In a broad sense, transitional injustice, I mean, transitional justice involves a range of these approaches that nation states employ to try to deal with past human rights violations. Um, there's probably a whole list of objectives, but I will just list eight here that I think would be, the, the field itself would say are really important. Establishing the truth, providing victims a public platform, holding perpetrators accountable, strengthening the rule of law, providing victims with compensation, effecting institutional reform, promoting reconciliation, and promoting public deliberation, or sort of the participatory process of, of citizens, civil society, in, in the justice uh, that they want to live by. So that's in a, that's in a sort of broad sweeping sen uh, sense of what the transitional justice process is all about, and I think it's still trying to find its way. I believe restorative justice is so critical to the transitional justice process because the transitional justice process, similar to our own Western criminal justice system, if you want to use that label, none of them are exactly uh, right, but Western or European um, criminal justice system, which has its roots in sort of Western European thought, is that the, the international flourishing of transitional justice has, first of all, cost a great deal of money. And the structures that have been set up, particularly under the International Criminal Court and those sorts, have been set up um, expressly and without, um, without any 
seeming question or analysis of whether our current Western justice system actually delivers justice. So we've just exported sort of a global version of our Western justice system overseas in much of our transitional justice processes from from mm -hmm. North America and Europe without asking the very critical questions that I think restorative justice has to bring to the table mm -hmm. to say, is this really a justice that satisfies uh, what human human kind really needs to say we're living in justice now. Carl, do you see that um, in your experiences that, uh, just on that note, that we have attempted to um, almost like employ a process of, I would, I would say this, um, maybe this isn't the right word, but, but in some ways perhaps a gentrification um, where we're, we're trying to, um, to, to kind of blanket uh, places with, that are hot spots with, um, with our form of justice? Um, and is it not uh, perhaps what you're speaking to, it's more of a, a recalling together of what justice really is? and also uh, a recalling of indigenous practices like you're, you were sharing about the practices in Sierra Leone and, and certainly the Gachacha courts in Rwanda, which, which bring back uh, a grounded truth um, right. and perhaps augment the process instead of, instead of us just handing it to them. We're, we're humbling ourselves perhaps and, and, and engaging in a conversation and perhaps even learning things as we go. It sounds Absolutely. like that's what you've done. In fact, this is, a, this is a great passion of mine. Um, part of what I'm really interested in when I'm in the research and writing that I'm currently involved with, and that is I feel really passionate about the fact that, um, and this comes out of, of course, our own North American experience of, of the critique of restorative justice being sort of a white middle class thing initially in its thought and, and thinking in the 70s as it emerged. And, um, and then other indigenous pre people groups, particularly our own First Nations people, saying, wait a minute, we, 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 we understand this kind of justice and let us share with you what we have done for, for, for many years. Now, I'm not one to glorify all indig indigenous justice processes. They are by no means all restorative nor all effective. And of course, there are big issues to ask around um, indigenous processes that were, a that were very satisfactory for a small village or a small group of people. What do you do when you try to scale that up to a nation coming out of war or genocide where the numbers and the severity of trauma are beyond the comprehension of what mm. might have been experienced uh, in, in in latter in latter times, but my point is that's not that's not enough of an argument to do away with indigenous justice, and we know how much the First Nations people have informed, including our circles process, our restorative justice practice uh, here and also in New Zealand uh, for where they've used a lot of 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 the process as sort of a hybrid process with the Maori uh, people, and and so my issue, and I'm seeing it spring up across Africa now is um, the fact that, yes, we have imposed a kind of justice system that has failed in many parts of the world. And um, when we're looking at this deep healing justice that we're after 
in restorative justice. We have to give room for this indigenous processes to emerge. Now, I think they're going to be hybrid. It's not going to be, as I said, I'm not glorifying the indigenous processes. We need to take a clear look at them and see how can we bring together our ideas and strengthen a justice process that is satisfying to all. But what I am particularly passionate about is that many of these indigenous justice processes have um, been written off as sort of uh, how shall I say, traditional ritual ceremonies uh, of, that, the, uh, that the anthropologists are supposed to look at. And in fact, they are serving a deeply profound human justice need. And my, um, my hypothesis is that uh, having worked within the legal fraternity as, as for many decades now, is that it's because we don't have a language that we share. And if we could find the bridging language between the justice processes that are happening, Sierra Leone has a beautiful process going forward right now called FAMBO Talk. It is not legislated by the justice, the national justice system or the government. It's a strictly community-based grassroots process that has spread to 162 different regions in the country, has cost about $1 million uh, so far to reach thousands of people, and the special court in Sierra Leone cost two to three hundred million dollars just to try nine people. Um, so, so, and then not on top of that, I, I think it's a, it's a culturally appropriate process, this family talk, which literally means family talk. So one of my passions is to figure out how to take the values behind family talk, give them a language that explains what's happening uh, from a justice perspective, a restorative justice perspective, and that hopefully being the bridging language that can open up a, um, a meaningful conversation with mm -hmm. the legal fraternities and the international criminal courts and those sorts of folks thinking about what is justice and how is justice satisfied. It's, it's so exciting to me that you bring up Fambel Talk um, because, uh, well, first of all, I was thinking about it in what you were sharing <laughs> earlier mm -hmm. about your experiences and, and also had the pleasure um, of, of talking with Libby Hoffman actually twice. Um, one oh, wonderful. This week and then last, last spring on the series. And then mm -hmm. John Cocker uh, joined us um, during oh, the, the Justice Week series this, this summer. So sure. um, it just... Oh, it, I'm very it, happy. I know John Cocker personally. We worked closely together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. yeah. It was an extraordinary council and... Um, mm -hmm. Really, mm -hmm. I think what that brings for me is uh, is just a, a question for you around um, because this is so inspiring to see these models happening like they are in Sierra Leone with Fambel Talk. And by the way, people who haven't heard of the movie Fambel Talk, you might want to check yes. that out. Um, yes, it's very powerful. Excellent, yeah, very powerful movie. Um, and I'll post that actually on the Do Peace website and. Um, I'm, I'm, while I'm just kind of pausing here, I would like to, to just welcome those of you who, who are arriving late, perhaps, this evening. We're talking with Dr. Carl Stauffer of Eastern Mennonite University, and uh, this archive will be posted at dopeace.us. And Carl, um, in a little while, we're going to be talking about uh, a couple exciting things that you have on the burner, um, including uh, a new book and also a webinar series that... Uh, Eastern Mennonite University is offering. But right now, I just want to hop back in to that line of thought that we were in and ask you 
how do we bring home the messages and the practices that um, have been working, like, for example, Fambapak in New Zealand in their juvenile system, I believe, um, and then also um, some form of the gachacha courts. Uh, it seems like there's, a, there's something there that maybe we could learn from here in the United States, and how do we mm -hmm. put those things into practice if we don't have a language, like you're saying. I love how you're saying, you, know, you were speaking to that a moment ago. Right, right. Well, and the funny thing is we've, we've rapidly moved away from a justice system. I mean, I'm not that old, but I think there's enough of us, I'm assuming, out there who can remember. You know, it wasn't always so so isolating and individualizing in, in the sense of our, the formal justice system has been that way for many decades. But I'm talking about within a sort of community or a neighbor, at least my experience. You know, if I, if I um, stole the oranges off the neighbor's orange tree, you know, my mom took me over. I'm being hypothetical now, over to the neighbors and, and rang the doorbell and, and said, Carl, now you apologize for what you, you stole. Um, and I was forced to face up and take responsibility for what I had done. And, and it was all about uh, keeping that neighborly community and relationship intact and, and, and relationships open. And, and we've lost that simple process even uh, amongst ourselves. I mean, restorative justice or, or indigenous justices that are based on restorative processes are not the domain of only those in the southern hemisphere, let's say. Um, you know, it, it was part of our own heritage, and uh, we need to take it back. We need to begin to take seriously the multi, um, the many different places where we are receiving information from different disciplines that are making it very clear that what we have known has worked all along is now being empirically um, confirmed in science, and I'm thinking right now of the, the new neuroscience work that has been coming out on our brains, and particularly around attachment theory, which initially was around the attachment between parent and child, but now it's becoming very clear that in fact our brains are wired to stay attached to each other. We are hardwired to be in touch with other human beings and to have meaningful community of some kind. Well, that's finally giving us empirical research that's, that's helping us understand why, wow, when we do victim offender conferencing in a really serious uh, crime situation, which I have done myself, what is that? We all, it ends up being called magical because we don't know what to say, but that, that point where the other, the humanness, uh, the human dignity and respect is, is established and, and, see, and looked at and acknowledged regardless of what has happened between two people and how they've been harmed. And then there's that, that sort of turning point. And that's around, and that's being confirmed now in many places. And, and we're beginning to understand why restorative justice works. Um, and so I think we need to keep thinking about what does it mean to see restorative justice not, as, not only as a skill set or a technical process that helps bring people together, helps people dialogue, helps interpersonal relations or communication get better. It's more than that. Um, I believe the cutting edge of restorative justice as a field, as a movement, if you will, uh, is in many ways um, finding a lot of camaraderie with trauma healing, for instance. We're beginning to understand that restorative justice provides an element of healing not entirely, but an element of healing in it, and that's what makes it so powerful. We're beginning to understand that trauma healing 
uh, I mean, sorry, restorative justice also provides um, a way of thinking, a way of living, a way of being with others that's nonviolent. So mm. it feeds into nonviolent communication. It feeds into the idea of actually providing, see, this is what I think is so powerful about restorative justice, is it actually provides us a framework for a nonviolent justice system. And our current justice system is mm. based on violence. Mm. It's state-sanctioned violence. And, well, and, and knowledge, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting, going on a little bit. Well, just one other, one other area that I want people to think about is restorative justice is community building, too. It's not just right. helping two individuals. If we can help individuals, a critical mass of individuals in a community, begin to communicate in a different way, and understand each other's relationship in a different way, you know, uh, restorative justice builds that sort of bonding, bridging, linking social capital that we're, that's all being talked about now in sociology. So we have a lot of disciplines starting to feed in, helping us understand what is so powerful about restorative justice. Mm. Wow. Well, at this point, um, we're a little after, of course, the, the half hour of the call, but I'd like to open sure. it up to our council and everybody that's coming in from wherever you are in the world tonight. If you have a question for Carl or a comment, um, please press 1 on your keypad. That's on your telephone keypad, pressing 1. And I'm going to start with a question from Dr. Archimedes. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Um, Dr. Archimedes Armando Orellana. And um, the question is, what should be the role of the organized ecclesiastic groups and the global philanthropists in bringing human justice to the many global residents? There's a, yeah, let me see if I caught that fool. You want to say it again, Molly, for me? Okay. I caught the Ecclesiastes, Ecclesi. Okay. You, know, you know what we'll do? Um, we'll come back to that one because we've got some live, live questions that I would sure. like to field. And that one was a sure. webinar question. So okay. um, I'll and come I'm back to that, Dr. Arlano. And uh, let's go ahead and open up the lines right now to Merwin. Merwin, you're live. Welcome. Merwin, you're live. Can you hear us? I'll go ahead and open it up. I'll come back to you, Merwin. Um, Robin, Robin, welcome. You're live. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. welcome. Okay, this is my first teleconference ever, so I um, have missed the ones with UPS, and I'm very honored to be in this one. I am a little bit younger than um, Carl, and I was on this continent mostly, um, don't want to get into all of my personal story, but basically I think about this situation of community building, and your experience was very different than mine. I was a latchkey kid, and I had been to daycare. Although my family did have you know, strong values at home, sometimes they didn't know how to... Um, they, they were so busy in their working and also in their... Um, political actions that they were in that I had to, um, I, I, I experienced quite a bit of trauma, I believe, vicarious trauma in learning about the situations that they were working on. I'm currently um, a P 
teach studies major at Oregon State University, and I'm just about to graduate, and I'm really interested in um, how I can find more about different models of indigenous um, practices that are emerging, including in our own communities here, because, um, you know, I certainly had free reign a lot of the time when I really could have been reined in in a better way. And I, um, yeah, and I, I guess I, I never wanted to harm anyone, but sometimes I didn't understand what that meant. Um, and sometimes I just had my own anger, and I still struggle with that. And as I, I get my own um, counseling for helping me to have, I worked in the, I worked in the mental health system um, here, which is a very harmful um, system as well historically, and in my own experience. And sure. I did some advocacy work. I was an ombudsman, and um, so I just wonder if you have any comments about how can we um, revive our own practices that that we have lost um, to um, this um, community that is more legalistic and more um, lo losing sight of what moral codes are in, in in light of the fact that I mean I understand that you're Mennonite and I'm I'm not Mennonite but we can certainly learn from one another. And I guess I would call myself a human secularist, secularist at this sure. point, but I don't know if that's even where I'll no, end up. Great, but, yeah. Sure, sure. No, I mean, well, I think what you you've... Thank you, Robin. Yeah, thank you, Robin. What you've, what you've described is, is exactly what I think has made... Um, well, in, in general, your up, upbringing seems to have been uh, what has made restorative justice become so powerful at this time in our in our society here um, in North America, and that is because we have become increasingly alienated and isolated from each other. and And I think there's no there's no rest of there's no formula. Um, I, I'll give I'll throw out a few ideas, Robin, that I hope you can grab hold of. Um, I do think that finding other like-minded people who are beginning to understand this conversation and want to um, live by a different set of values and who want to possibly look at the view the world from a different perspective, find those people. It might just be one or two, but when you find them, um, make intentional efforts to come together and build that community that possibly isn't automatically around you, nor that you grow up with. We have to we have to rebuild that community in our lives. Some of us may find that within our faith traditions, but others will, who are not in faith traditions uh, that that have that automatic sort of place of community. We'll need to find that and build that. And, and I encourage folks like what's happening here, and uh, but whether you find folks on the academic scene or in your community that come together on that. And then begin to, to try to say, what would it mean to live a restorative, in a restorative way? And when you start to ask a different set of questions about which restorative justice provides us, um, it, it helps us to change how we see the world around us, and particularly as it comes to justice issues. So, I mean, one of the three major the core major questions in my my mind, and Howard Zare has put this forward in his in his seminal work around restorative justice, is they ask a different set of questions. They say, who has been harmed 
and that's not putting anyone in a category. That's not talking about victims and offenders. That's talking about human beings who has been harmed by whatever offense has taken place. And how have they been harmed, and what are the needs that have come out of that? And when we start to answer those questions more uh, honestly, the third question then says, and then who's obligated to try to make uh, things right, to try to make amends in this situation? And as, if you bear those questions in mind and begin to live by them in the way you relate it at work or at school or with an immediate family, it's, it starts to change the lens in which we look at life. And, and we start to move in the direction of living a restore, in a restorative justice uh, way, which I think is actually, as you're already hearing me say, is a lifestyle. It's not just a set of technical skills. That has mm-hmm. a, it's a lifestyle that has a certain amount of values uh, following it. And then I would encourage you to look for um, as much um, reading as you can. There is a lot of publishing coming out now, and specifically around indigenous justice processes. Um, there is a press called Living Waters, Living Waters Press, I believe it is, or is it Living Streams? I'm sorry, I should have gotten that right. But um, that that has a lot of the writing coming out of the First Nations peoples uh, and and restorative justice related writing. There are many other publishers doing that, but that that's one that's specifically uh, looking into that. And I would highly recommend the work of Rupert Ross, uh, one of his books um, that's particularly helpful to understand the indigenous uh, forms of justice that the First Nations Canadian groups are working with is Returning to the Teachings. That's the name of the book, Returning to the Teachings by Rupert Ross. Thank you. Mm. I just also, if I might, Carl, I'd like to acknowledge Robin's uh, comments, too, um, about uh, what I was hearing from you, Robin, was the universality of restorative justice and practices and that um, irregardless of of the the faith faith that that um, gives us uh, perhaps a a lift or a bulwark or strength in in our service and in our understanding and relationships, um, this is a, a universal um, practice of sorts that goes beyond boundaries, borders, and um, and faith or religion, so to speak. Um, it seems, and so I, I really appreciate that, Robin. And um, we we have quite a few people wanting to ask questions. Carl, I'll go ahead and yep. open up again here. Uh, Merwin, it looks like I I have two lines for you, so I'm going to try the other one, and I'm unmuting you right now. Merwin, welcome. Hello. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. You're okay. Uh, first of all, Carl, uh, this is Mervyn Demello. Uh, former yes. graduate of uh, CJP. Of course. And, yeah. <laughs> well, Wonderful to know, hear your voice. <laughs> good to hear you too. Uh, it's been very absorbing. I want to bring a little bit of my experience having lived and worked in Zimbabwe for uh, a couple of yes. years uh, and the uh, horrific situation there. Civil society has been talking a lot around transitional justice or transitional justice mm-hmm. mechanisms. And the conversation that we have brought, having some of us having had first-hand experience of the Truth Commission in South Africa, is that that will not necessarily be a framework that would work for Zimbabwe, because right. the reality and the context is so different. Right. And we have been talking about uh, localizing transitional justice, in fact, uh, using frameworks that 
dwell upon some of the mechanisms that are within Zimbabwe, uh, traditional mechanisms, and also mm -hmm. literally decentralizing what transitional justice will look like. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get your idea. You having worked in South Africa, and I think also in Zimbabwe to a certain yes. extent, you know, I yes. wanted to, to hear what you might think about that. But then the sure. other question would be to challenge you a bit on what you were referring to giving, uh, frame, giving language to fumble talk or mechanisms like that and then taking them to more international forums. And I think the fear that I have with my experience is that oftentimes when that language is given, the, uh, the, the caution that needs to be exercised is that what, what, what most happens most times is that the local or the traditional uh, frameworks tend to get compromised. Yes. That, that is my experience, number one. Yes. Uh, number two, when you were talking about bringing restorative justice or traditional mechanisms to, to the West, uh, my understanding or my experience in the West is that communities themselves have been compromised. There, there isn't a sense of community here. So my, my thought would be, do communities need to be restored prior to bringing restorative justice practices to, to the West? Uh, so I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, a little, I'm a little concerned about how would that happen. So maybe you're just your right. thoughts on these three different areas. Thank you. Sure, absolutely. Thank you, Marin. Wonderful, uh, good and wonderful questions. Um, let me just start from the from the the latter and, and move back to the first. Um, on the community side, I, I share your analysis very much. So we have this breakdown in community that has made much of of what what restorative justice is actually built on the values it's built on very difficult to to ascertain because of this. Uh, sort of splintered community in, in our current culture here in North America. And, and I think, yes, we do need to restore community. The question is whether it's, it's going to be, do we need to restore community before we can start to apply restorative justice? I'm not sure. I think, in fact, there was, we have to begin to understand restorative justice as part of the way in which we restore community. So that, in fact, through the restorative justice processes, we are beginning to understand that and being very intentional to move it beyond just isolated individuals and, and bring in the community. And, of course, um, that takes some rethinking of the way we, we do things. Um, I mean, a few examples, we did restorative justice work within the criminal justice system in South Africa also. And, and one particular urban community that suffered much of the same sort of urban social struggles and challenges that we talk about in this country, uh, as we went back to evaluate, some of them said, you're teaching us how, not, not me or any particular person, but the, the local community mediators that we had trained, the, the feedback from the community was saying, you're teaching us how to communicate again. We, we didn't know how to talk without shouting or talking over each other. And that sounds very simplistic, um, but that was the beginning of starting to say, okay, there's a new way in which we can be as community, as neighbors. And so I'd like to believe that the process itself, if we're creative enough, the process of restorative justice could be the mechanism to help rebuild some of that community. Not the only one, nor the panacea, but one of them. Regarding the indigenous justice processes and finding a language, uh, I hear you, um, 
Myrna, and I, and I and I stand with you completely. I'm deeply concerned about the processes being co-opted. And in fact, I'm very happy that um, the Fambul talk. Um, John Cocker and others who started that have been very clear. They've drawn their boundaries very clear that they will not allow politicians to hijack the process. And there have been many politicians, of course, as it gains momentum and popularity, who have wanted to sort of attach their name to it or have a prominent role in the Fembul talk process. And John Cocker and the others in leadership with him have said, absolutely not. You're free to be involved in Fembul talk as a community member, but you will not be treated any differently because you have a political position or political post, and you certainly won't be able to use Fembul talk as sort of a political platform. That's just one example of how we need to resist that. Um, and, and it comes in many other ways, too, financially and so on. But the language is also very important. And so when I talk about a bridging language, it's more for the uh, – I'm talking about the bridging language being more for the sake of our dominant Western justice system needing to hear a new language and maybe hear some more familiarity of the kinds of values or ideals that they claim they want to accomplish, hear how those are being accomplished in a process that's completely grassroots, community-driven. And yeah, I would be concerned that um, that language not be co-opted for, for, again, for Western criminal justice to sort of, say, uh, hijack it and, and use it as window dressing for look at what we're doing. Um, so that would be a delicate process, and we'd have to tread lightly in that. Regarding Zimbabwe, not only did I did I work in Zimbabwe, but I ended up doing my PhD work around Zimbabwe, and, and the book that was being talked about is actually my work from that. So I have a lot of <laughs> a lot of thoughts around what it would mean to see transitional justice happening in Zimbabwe. Uh, in short, I would say a few things. Yes, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. I'm not convinced. In fact, I'm I'm more convinced that we cannot. Um, just export that in some in any form and expect that it'll be successful in another context. And, and we've discovered that in West Africa, the Truth Commission processes, both in Liberia and Sierra Leone, were not not nearly as effective or or um, useful or empowering for the nation as they had been as it had been in South Africa. And so we're realizing that the South African context had a very specific had very specific particularities that came together at a particular time to make that work as it did um and we need to look at each context differently so zimbabwe would be no exception one thing that immediately would be very clear to me is until the structures of government governance in zimbabwe are transformed uh into more more just um organizational or institutional uh, formations, uh, it's going to be very difficult to see restorative justice um, go forward in in Zimbabwe. Not only that, there would, so there would need to be a change of governance in my mind and some structural um, transformation before it could go forward. But I also believe there would need to be a great deal of undoing of political history and um, the and the way in which, and this was what my 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 doctoral work was around how. The ZANU PF, the ruling party, built up and sustained a violence narrative and a meta narrative of violence that they hoisted on the whole nation, and the nation actually internalized to a great degree, except for the Matabeli, who have always been in opposition, and their resistance um, is finally being being heard and understood in a new way, 
and I, I can't imagine Zimbabwe uh, moving into any form of durable justice in the future if they don't include the victims uh, and survivors of the Matibeliland Mat Mat violence um, between 1980 and 1987, when about 20,000 people were were massacred, and no one's ever taken responsibility for that. So that's going to have to be um, brought in and integrated into Zimbabwe's history for it to go forward with any form of justice, along with many other things. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Carl. And I just want to do uh, uh, just to make sure that there's a sound check here. Um, you can hear me okay. I'm assuming yes. at this point. Great. Um, yeah, that was. Those were profound questions, and I always appreciate um, the spirit of dialogue being one where you know we we bring to the table what what we have and challenging ideas and. Uh, you know, opening to um, a new field of understanding because these these issues are so important. And Carl, I just your mind and your experience. Um, I love the balance that you bring here tonight, and it's extraordinary. This conversation we we unfortunately are coming close to a close, but I, I just want to do a time check with you, Carl, and see if you mm -hmm. might be willing to take one more question live. Sure. And then um, I'd really like to make sure we cover a bit about your book and about the webinar sure. series upcoming. So I'm going to open up the lines here to Jim. Uh, Jim, welcome, and, and you're live. Thank you. Um, I'm one of the old guys. I've been, I've been a lawyer over 40 years. I was in law school when the U.S. Supreme Court said that juveniles had uh, rights like due process and constitutional rights like due process and equal protection. Um, and I've been working as a litigator until I uh, got smart enough to uh, take James O'Dee's a peace ambassador training class, and I'm a mediator now. And a, um, my 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 uh, my question is, or I guess my statement, and then a question. My my statement is, California's going broke. I'm sure there's a lot of other states that are just like California. The governor's announced that he's going to cut another 544 million dollars out of the out of the judicial budget. Um, I'm a Rotarian, and we're trying to help our communities, uh, help ourselves to restore justice in our communities, um, and we know the communities because we live here and we work here and we're part of the community. Um, and we've got uh, uh, schools that are interested in restorative practices and, and the judicial system interested in uh, restorative justice practices. Uh, and we've got very, very different kinds of communities, foothill communities. We've got cities like Stockton and Modesto that have serious gang problems. Um, and what what everybody says when you when you start talking about this, well, show me that there are there's evidence-based uh, 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 proof that these systems work. And while we all know that that's true, is there some composite of evidence-based uh, um, pr proof that th these things work? Because what everybody is telling me when I approach them from my position as a Rotarian is, we know you guys do good work. We want to work with you. Um, we, we're looking for things that work because we're broke, and and right. we can't do, we we can't keep doing what we're doing. But we we don't have time to um, go down a bunch of blind or dead dead end roads. And so everybody's ready in California to hear this message, and it's a it's it's a you know groundswell of of, of interest. Do you, do you have a, a compendium of evidence based proof that this works, so we can show it to bureaucrats who will then. Help, help to yeah. bring the communities together? 
Yeah. Um, well, let me say there's two parts to that. <laughs> the one is as a practice-based, I mean, restorative justice grew out of practice. We are a practice-based field. The, 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 the good side of that is that it keeps us on a creative edge, and there's been a lot of important new kinds of applications, and I think we should keep that. The downside of that is we have had a hard time um, making enough space to actually theorize about our practice and, and then do the research to back up that theory. And so you're right. There is a, we are running on a lot of anecdotal, anecdotal fumes of, of, of good, warm, fuzzy experiences without empirically putting them into some kind of research. And so one of the biggest challenges that I think that are out there, and if any of the folks listening in the community are researchers and want to put their mind to this, there's great opportunity, I think. There, on, the, on, on a second note, though, Jim, there is um, more and more research coming out. And I, I couldn't give you all of the names right off the top of my head of, of different folk doing that. Certainly the work by Mark Umbright in Minnesota. You, wanna, you would want to try to follow Mark Umbright um, and uh, his work at the University of Minnesota. Um, and uh, he's done quite a bit on this. There have been other um, uh, major major research work. It's a little spotty. It's not a compendium, as you were saying. I wish we had some, you know, large comparative longitudinal studies or more of them. There are some, but we do have evidence that's out there. We have evidence around recidivism. First of all, that 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 there has been comparative research between especially juvenile offenders, but others who have gone through a restorative justice process and those who haven't. And the recidivism rate does lower. And so we can, we can argue around the cost of keeping um, folks who go in and out of the correctional system, keeping them, you know, just housing them is expensive. And if we're lowering recidivism, we are saving money. We do know, the research has proven, that those who go through restorative justice processes, when it comes to restitution, the state can only brag about 30 to 50 percent success rate in actually gathering the the the, um, the the reparations or the restitution that is ordered by the court. When they have a direct face-to-face -face encounter in a restorative justice process, and there's a direct plan between victim and offender, the restitution success rate jumps to between 70 and 80 percent, which means uh, there's something about that human interaction. And, and that, again, can also be uh, talked about as, 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 um, as beneficial in, in, in society at large. We are discovering then on top of that, not discovering, there's also um, research out there that has indicated that the process itself is less expensive all the way around. Even if we have to use staff, and, and, and we use a lot of volunteers and stuff, but just generally all the way around, you can take a mediation case that's a misdemeanor and process it within about three weeks with some volunteers, uh, mediators who are well-trained, and that saves the court a huge amount of, uh, of, of cost comparatively if, if those same cases would have to go before the bench. So we're beginning to accrue that, that information, but it is, it is slow. And um, there has been some composite studies, one particularly from 1992, and I'm trying to remember the name, but four different areas in the U.S. did some work with juvenile offenders, found that those who went through restorative justice 
where there was only 22% recidivism rate amongst those juvenile offenders, whereas the comparative group that didn't go through restorative justice, there was a 34% recidivism rate um, that followed, and that's a pretty big jump between 22% and 34% recidivism rate. So there's those kinds of statistics that are coming out. I'd be happy to try to have more conversation and gather some more of those uh, research um, uh, uh, sources for you if, if you would like. So terrific, and, you know. Our, those are the same kind of numbers. Our, our mediation panel in, a, in this little bitty community of Tuolumne County, so Sonora, uh, we're settling 75, 80 percent of our uh, cases in, in that are in the court um, in a day, and, and sometimes yeah. in two hours that have been fighting yeah. for for years and years and years. And Absolutely. <laughs> it, it, so the the courts are going, wow, this stuff actually works, and yeah. and. Uh, yeah. The schools are interested in it, and, and right. community leaders that are Rotarians are pushing it. And so, uh, but I do need evidence-based, statistical, yeah, uh, academic, uh, academicians <laughs> actually can help us in this regard. Right, that's the word out there, evidence-based. I know what you mean. And if we can attach a cost to that two hours or that one day that you work at at, at breaking this cycle of someone going in and out, I mean that's 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 critical. We have to we have to begin to do that. And um, there's a there's a program in Canada that did very serious like uh, homicides and and uh, very serious cases. They only did 400 cases because they're so in depth and they take so much long and so much preparation. They only did 400 cases in 10 years, but the Canadian government gave them money because they realized even those 400 violent potentially violent offenders being redirected out of the system was worth it because if they had been back in the system it would have cost them a lot more mm. thank you so much jim and it's great to have you on tonight i um carl do you think also uh and maybe this was already stated earlier i think we referred to it at least uh, the, the system in New Zealand, the juvenile system, does yes. have some pretty convincing statistics yes. as well. They do, and there is a there was a long a longer study done by some folks in England in the UK too that I think is quite useful. I'm just trying to re I don't have the names on my tip of my tongue. Carl, would you be willing to um, be a part of taking this conversation possibly to the the discussion board? with anyone who might have remaining questions. There's just been such an influx tonight, and we, we sure. are um, over time. And sure. uh, at dopeace.us, there is that um, not only the announcements and the events um, page for this series, but, but also a discussion board and a group area. So for people who might like to um, continue the discussion, I'd invite you to go there for that, and and also, Carl, if there's other ways that people might like to to um, access conversation with you, I'm I'm not sure, but um, certainly feel free to contribute that um, and talk sure. a little bit about your book and about this upcoming webinar series. Um, in sure. Closing tonight, I really want to hear about that. About sure. That. And I won't hold folks uh, too long at all. Um, the book, it, it came out in 2011. It really is um, um, my, my, my doctoral work around um, Zimbabwe. It's called Acting Out the Myths, um, the Politics of Narrative Violence in Zimbabwe. And essentially, I'm looking at um, the, the situation in Zimbabwe and doing a violence um, 
narrative analysis. And so it is fairly academic. It's, it's 450 pages, so it's not an easy read. It's not a popular read at this point. It is put out by an academic publisher called Lambert uh, uh, Publishers. And um, so I simply put a plug in there for those who might have interest from an academic perspective or from an Africa Studies Center or for libraries or so on, or if you have a particular interest in that um, geographical location of the southern Africa and what it means for transition to possibly happen in a place as entrenched as Zimbabwe has been in the violence narrative. That being said, um, we here at the Center for um, Justice and Peace Building are finally starting to move into um, online coursework. And Howard uh, Zare actually um, hosted the first course last spring on conversations in restorative justice. And it's a um, hybrid model. We feel strongly about our, our pedagogy that we remain engaged. So uh, there's one week in which uh, we bring all of the folks together on a platform that allows for um, uh, a synchronous interaction for a few hours. And then the off week, students get together in smaller groups in a region and, um, and meet and talk and do other sorts of assignments. We have two of those online courses coming up in the spring this year, 2013, one on transitional justice and restorative justice that I will be involved with, followed by um, Howard Zare also leading another course, again, on restorative conversations um, around sort of critical issues in the field. As far as the webinars, this fall we're going to be running a series of webinars. We have four of them. And if you go to our website, um, which is uh, emu.edu uh, backslash um, CJP, which stands for the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding, you'll get onto our web and, and, and start to see the announcements around there. There will be four webinars. They're filling up quickly. Howard Zare and I will be hosting them and bringing in different guest speakers who will be speaking on a range of issues um, from, as, from practical issues like how do we set up a, a program, a restorative justice program? What does it mean to sort of think about setting up a nonprofit in restorative justice or whatever? To how do we work with restorative justice within the system, the criminal justice system as it is now, and, uh, and so on. So I encourage folks, we would love to have you. Uh, take a look at that lineup of webinars on our on our webpage, and feel free to that join sounds, us. Uh, excuse me, it just sounds so powerful, and I certainly, for one, will be there and uh, really encourage people to seek that out and take part. And and also, just want to say for you, social media fans, uh, Eastern Mennonite University is on Twitter, and you can follow them at emu underscore news. And I think. Carl, you said that, that there will be some news coming through about more details for the, the courses this spring um, and possibly right. through that Twitter channel, as well as on right. Facebook at Eastern Mennonite University. So I'm just encouraging people to stay connected with you through those channels. And um, certainly to um, let's, let's continue the conversation if we can. And are you willing to, to have people contact you? Um, through through the university or, or through the discussion board? What, what works best for you, Carl, to talk about RJ issues? Sure. I, I, I'm open to um, folks who would like to contact me through, through the university. And if you have some sort of um, place in which you'd want me to engage with some others, I could, I could try to also be involved there. 
uh, obviously do you understanding. I do. Uh, I teach full-time, so it has to be in the cracks. Um, <laughs> and I just got back from Orlando, Florida, at the International um, Community Corrections Association meetings and gave one of the plenaries on restorative justice there, which was, which was wonderful to have that conversation with three to 400 people from across the country working at community corrections. Wow. Well, it's just an honor to have had this conversation with you. And I know there's so much to cover in this rich dialogue. And I want to thank everyone who has joined us tonight from wherever it is in the world that you reside in your community. And to thank each of you, too, for the powerful work that, that you do in, in whatever way that relates to restorative justice. And uh, again, this, this archive will be posted at dopeace.us. Um, just click on Restorative Justice to get there for the, the series upcoming. We're going to be welcoming Lauren, Abram, Lauren Abramson next week. So join us Thursday next week, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, sign up for that at dopeace.us. And thank you again, Carl, so much. Thank for you. Tonight. And everyone have a great night wherever you are. Thanks again. <laughs>